Grab a Bible and make your way this morning to the book of 3 John. 3 John, that's where we are. We've been working through the letters of, of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We started 3rd John last week. We're working through this verse by verse, and we're wanting you to journey there with us. So hopefully you brought a Bible. You're making your way there. If you didn't, there's Bibles in front of you and the chairs in front of you, page number on the screen, so you could get there really rapidly. Uh, you can use an electronic device if you want to follow along in an app. That's great. One way or another, though, we want you to see it. We believe that God's Word is powerful. And, and we want you to hear it. We want you to be able to see what's there. We want it to impact your life. And so we're inviting you to have that open. If you're in the overflow or you're online, hey, same invitation. Grab a Bible. Join us so that God would meet us in his word, longing that today he would just give us th- that word from him that we so much need to hear. So with that as a name, I'm going to ask God to do that. And I'm going to pray, but I'm inviting you to do the same thing, just like we do each week. Uh, just pausing right now before we dive straight in, and let's just ask him to take his word and make it known to us. I'm going to ask, but I'm hoping you would be asking that God would take what he wants you to hear and that you would hear it this morning. Father, thank you so much for who you are, the but God reality that you have stepped into life. Thank you that you are hope. Thank you for your word. Thank you that what we have here in our hands, it's yours that you told us everything necessary for life and godliness you gave us. Thank you. Thank you that it's more than just words on a page, though. Thank you that you tell us it's alive, it's active, that your voice, it's not just a voice from the past. It's a voice that is speaking in the present. God, would you do that now? Would you help us, just your, your word, just to reverberate and, and land in lives, producing in us what we need? God, you understand this better than I can put into words, but that's different all around the room. We are in different moments and we are in different spaces. And the thing that we need to hear this morning specifically out of this will be different, but you are so able to do that or do that. Please give us today, give us the ability to hear what your spirit is saying to us this morning or just to come to you in even just those words. I think of uh, Samuel being taught as a young man, young child, just to ask, Lord, speak. Your servant is listening. May it be so, Lord. May you speak today. May we be listening. May your word land in our lives in a good way. By your power, we're asking for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, we think about this morning, and I want to tell you one of the greatest treasures in any church and in this church are some of the godly people in the midst of the church who are doing well, who are, who are shining in many ways. And I want to tell you that as we get a chance to meet just such a man this morning. Yeah, here in 3 John, I want to introduce to you a man named Gaius, who we are calling the godly Gaius. He is one of four men who we have just a snapshot of their lives here in 3 John. 3 John is the smallest letter in the New Testament, and yet in here, he gives us this perspective of four different men and their space that they have there in the church. And the reality is that just as if they were there, there's probably all of these four men and our fellowship and more. This isn't like a 
perfect catalog of everything in a church, but nevertheless, it's good for us to look through and say, hey, there's different spaces in there. We're going to meet Gaius this morning, this godly man. Last week, if you were with us, we took a chance of looking at this exemplary elder. That is John. We saw this older man who's still living for Jesus, still walking for him, and just the good example he is in that. Thankful for that. Thankful for those in our fellowship that find themselves that way. Then next time, we're going to have to talk about uh, you know, this guy down here, Demetrius, uh, uh, sorry, Diotrephes, the dictatorial Diotrephes, and we'll talk more about him. We'll talk more about who he is and maybe surprising in some ways some things we're going to have to learn. And then lastly, we'll end our whole series in Third John by looking at Demetrius, kind of this devout guy in the midst of it. Four men that, that you get to meet and see a part of and hoping that you would see them and be moved by their lives in this short study. Well, in that, again, today, today, we're just going to look at one, though. We're going to look at Gaius. We're going to look at this man who is an incredibly godly man. Well, why don't you just notice with me how it begins there in verse 1, just so you see it. It says, the elder, that is John, who we talked about last week, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Gaius. Well, yeah, he's the one that this letter is written to. He's this one that John wants to write to and, 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 and speak some incredible things. And before we quickly talk about that, let's just back up for a moment and say, do we, have we met this man anywhere else? For some of you Bible students, you'll go, I, th- I think I recognize this name. Well, actually, uh, the, the name Gaius is mentioned five times. Uh, five times in the New Testament, we find uh, Gaius mentioned. But here's the deal. We don't actually know if it's the same Gaius. Uh, Bible students are actually fairly split on this. Some say there's two Gaiuses, and some say there's three Gaiuses, and some say there's five, uh, you know, in the midst of it. Uh, we don't really know. We do know that Gaius was not an uncommon name in Greek culture. I mean, I think about that. You guys know that. I mean, we think about people in our, our, our fellowship that have the same name. I mean, we have so many Kevins and Cindys. And it's like, which one did you mean? Like, you know, which one is it? And so many times it kind of gives us, well, Gaius of within the text. That said, it's still not impossible that it's the same man that kind of moved around. Now, just in case you're wanting to see it, let me just quickly give you those four other verses where Gaius is mentioned. The first one is in Acts 19, where it talks about in Ephesus, they seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's traveling companions. So there in Ephesus, they they, began to turn. They arrested uh, several of them. Gaius was among the ones that were there among Paul's traveling companions that were arrested. We find Gaius, maybe a different one, uh, mentioned in chapter 20, where it says, Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus, Secundus of Thessalonius, and Gaius of Derbe. Like, it's like, okay, that Gaius. It's like he's the one of, of Derbe. And Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus, they're all of Asia. So, again, we see this guy traveling. Then Paul would write to the church in Corinth, and he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Like, I, 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 I baptized this guy there in the city of Corinth, being there. In fact, in Corinth, Paul would write the letter to the book of Romans. And in Romans, he would say, uh, you know, Gaius, my host and host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you, and Corderus, his brother. So there in the city of Corinth, there's this guy, Gaius, who is actually even hosting the church. And again, maybe you understand this, but in those days, there were no church buildings. I mean, there were, that, that hadn't existed yet in history. Church really met in homes, sometimes large homes and in the midst of it. And so different people would, you know, kind of be those who provided it. Gaius seems to do that there in Corinth. And it's possible 
It's possible that the letter that you and I are reading is written to him. Uh, maybe they're in Corinth. We don't have a city listed, although John is known to have served mostly uh, at the end of his life in Ephesus, might have moved there, or it's entirely possible it's an entirely different Gaius. Hey, all of that said, here's what we do know. What's held before us here is a man who is a really godly man. In fact, I, I want to just cause you to notice it with me, so why don't we just read through this section uh, that we're going to ca- talk about this morning, but I want you to feel almost the description of his godliness. So it says it again in verse 1, the beloved, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health. Notice this, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. He's a godly guy. In fact, again, that description at the end of verse 2 is what I want you to understand. John is able to say, hey, his soul, like the soul of Gaius, is prospering. That's a pretty cool word. Hey, catch it here. The idea of prospering has the idea of growing and increasing. I mean, we understand that, right? We would use it any of that, that way in our modern vernacular as well. But he's looking at it and saying, that's who this guy is. Like, here's this godly man who's moving, who's becoming, just growing in the ways of God, growing in his ways. His soul is doing so well. But maybe his body isn't. Maybe his body is suffering. Oh, it's a question, but track with me how it says it. So you get this verse too, right? Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, there's no guarantee as we read this, that he's actually suffering, but it's a pretty valid uh, just assumption. In fact, think about it this way. Imagine you came into the church this week, and uh, you walk into the office, and I happen to be on the phone call, and you're hearing me on the phone, and I'm kind of ending with somebody and saying, boy, I just want you to know, hey, we're praying for your health, <laughs> praying things go well for you. You know, I just want to let you know that we're praying for that, and I hang up, and you would hear that, and immediately you probably would be like, oh, Jim, what's going on? Like, like, who are we praying for? I mean, it just sounds like if we're praying for that, there's probably a problem. Like, if we're praying for that, there's probably something going wrong, and that's a fairly good assumption here. It's not a guarantee. Uh, it could be just a, a kind word of blessing, but it is a possibility that even as we think about this godly man doing well, he, he might not be doing well so, so well physically. That's kind of important for us. In fact, it's right there where we're going to pause just for a little bit. So I want you to kind of freeze this in your mind. We're we're thinking about this godly man, this Gaius, whose soul is prospering, and we're going to come back to this in just a moment. We're going to come back and pick up where we are right here. We're going to rabbit trail, but we're going to rabbit trail for just a little while. So I'm just letting you know, just so you can track with me, because before we talk about what this verse is telling us and these verses are putting before us, I want to tell you what it's not telling us. I want to tell you what it's not saying. And maybe you're already aware of this, but if not, let me just put before you these verses. In fact, verse 2 is one of the most misused verses in the New Testament, and it will be being used wrongly across our world today. For here's what people will say. They will look at this and say, hey, you know, we're praying there. We believe in verse 2 that you could prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. And what many will teach is that that's not just a prayer, that's a promise. 
And they will say, hey, if you're godly, you're going to be healthy. And if you're godly, you're going to be successful. Now, we look at that whole thing, and we would kind of quickly surmise that, and I want to tell you, hey, not original with me, but it is often kind of articulated as the prosperity gospel. So let me kind of just push away Gaius for a moment, and let's kind of talk about this idea, this prosperity gospel, this place, this kind of concept that would say, hey, godliness equals health and success. And before we go there, can I just say, I want you to hear my heart. I want you to hear my heart. I, I want to say this with the most compassion I can say it with the most kindness I can say it, but as clearly as I can say it. I want to tell you that when I think about the prosperity gospel, this kind of, if you're godly, this will happen, I absolutely hate it. It is a destructive lie that is tearing up souls in our world today, and I would like to rescue you from it, and I would like to protect you from it. And if God gives me strength this morning right here in this space, I want you just to think about it with me for a moment in a way that would rescue you from it if you're falling under it and keep you out of it uh, so that if it's presented, you go, that's just not true. That's not the, the reality that's there. So let's just kind of begin in a very simple way. Godliness equals health and success. It's not true. It's not true. It's just not true on the most practical level. Can we just admit it? It just doesn't work. I mean, I don't think anybody has to be a rocket scientist kind of thing to be able to go, um, you know, this does not really, this does not really work. I mean, if you just open your eyes, you would understand it doesn't play out in such a simple formula in life. It would be kind of like, you know, if I told you, like, all white rocks float. And you, if you just, oh, okay, you know, just believe him because he said, it's like, well, they don't. Like, it just doesn't, I mean, I don't even know, that's probably a terrible illustration, but sometimes just being able to say, hey, is this true? Does this work? It doesn't. Here's what we know. There are some incredibly godly people who love God and serve Him well, and they are not doing well physically. There's some incredible people. There are people in the Bible like Job. Job, if you've read the book of Job, he literally was the most godly man on planet earth. God says so. Tells us that in Job chapter 2. Like God says, there's not anybody on planet earth that is more godly than Job. And then he goes through financial, physical, relational. I mean, his world explodes. It goes horribly wrong, and yet he's very, very godly. Paul the Apostle, he goes through trials. He talks about his eyesight not working well and how people had to help even write letters for him because of just things failing in the midst of it. I mean, he, he struggled physically at times. So we would look and say, okay, sometimes really godly people suffer. And yet sometimes godly people thrive. It's not like all godly people suffer. No, sometimes godly people, God will really bless. Like Moses, he's 120 years old, and it kind of ends his life. He says, like, his vigor never diminished. Like, his, his life, he was fully just physically to the end of his life. He was just healthy as, as, as could be and, and, and walked well in the midst of that. And sometimes there is that space. So we wouldn't say, hey, all times, all God's people suffer. Sometimes they suffer. Sometimes they, you know, God will take care of them. They'll thrive in the midst of this. And sometimes, sometimes ungodly people really thrive. There's a bunch of really rich, healthy, ungodly people in our world today. I don't know if you knew that. I don't know if that's like brand new to you. I just want to tell you like, hey, some of the richest people in our world today, and even healthy, they, they can be ungodly. But that can be a problem for us. Hey, it was for Asaph. One of my favorite Psalms, in Psalm 73, this is what it deals with. I'm just going to read part of it to you. If you want to read the whole Psalm later, I would highly commend it. But Asaph writes it this way in Psalm 73. 
He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He says, here's what I know. God is good. It's true. God is good. I, I, I know that God is good. But you know what? I, I, I almost lost it. I almost stumbled. I almost slipped in the midst of this. My steps almost go that way. Why? Because I was envious. I was envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, there are no pangs in their death. Their strength is firm. He says, I was looking at some ungodly people, and they seem to be doing so incredibly well. He says, they're not in trouble as other men. They're not plagued like other men. Their pride serves as their necklace, and they're violent. I mean, they, they, they literally are hurting other people, and yet they seem to be getting away with it and sometimes thriving. He says, their eyes, they bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. They scoff. They speak wickedly, oppressing, and they speak so loftily. I mean, they're arrogant, harmful in the midst of this, and yet they set their mouth, he says, against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth, and they say, how does God know? And is there any knowledge in the Most High? Sad reality is true. Hey, there's some really ungodly people who are doing really, really well, successfully, financially, and they literally actually mock God. I mean, they're literally like, there is no God. Don't believe there's God. He doesn't care. He doesn't work. I mean, they literally are doing that. And Asaph looks at it and says, hey, these are the ungodly. And yet they're always at ease. They seem to be doing so well. They increase in riches. And for Asaph, this was incredibly struggling. Well, see, part of the problem is not only did he see that in them, for him personally, he says, well, surely I've cleansed my heart in vain. I've washed my hands in innocence for all day long. I've been plagued and chastened every morning. He's like, here I am. I'm trying I'm trying to live this thing out, and it's not going so well for me. Like, I'm not successful. I'm not doing, I mean, and, and it's like, is, is this a waste of time? I mean, am I wasting my time? I mean, because it, it, it doesn't seem to work the way that maybe I thought, and, and for Asaph, this was a huge struggle. So when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Hey, without spending a bunch of time on this, the, the Hebrew in here is really powerful that lets us know this wasn't like a passing curiosity for Asaph, kind of like, hey, that's interesting. Kind of a troubling thought. Every now and then I think about it. No, he's like, this was crushing me. I mean, this was piercing my soul. It was so painful. Like, I couldn't figure out, like, why is it like this? Why is it not work the way I thought it would work? He says it's incredibly hard. And again, we'll come back and talk more about what Asaph does with that. But again, I commend you the whole psalm if you want to read it. But we would just say with Asaph, you know, sometimes really ungodly people do really well. They do thrive. But it's also not a guarantee that way. There are some ungodly people that really suffer. I mean, there's a bunch of people that don't know God. And they get, I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, they don't get cancer. They do. They get, you know, we would know. It's like, hey, that makes sense. But here's the problem. There is no easy formula here. It doesn't work this way that godly people you know, are healthy and ungodly people are not. There is no fact in the way that that would work. Now, that's just helpful for us to own, even though it raises lots and lots of questions right off the, the bat as we think through what that would look like. So it's just not true. But this idea of this prosperity gospel, where people who are saying it's true, it is destructive on so many levels. Maybe the first level I just want to say is this, is, it is absolutely a, a, just an obnoxious thing towards God. It misrepresents Him. That one of the most heart-wrenching and heartbreaking thing for me is this, is that this lie that is very prominent in our world today, this prosperity gospel, it is absolutely giving a wrong picture of who God is. It misrepresents God. It misrepresents Jesus. Jesus would say it this way. 
He said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life for a ransom for many. He says, I didn't come, you know, to have everybody take care of me. And he says, I came to give my life away. I came to serve. I came to, to pour that out. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, he would say, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Like, he, he didn't come and live a rich, opulent life, you know, with all the, I mean, he came to give his life away, and yet how very foreign it looks today for some of those who are the proponents of this prosperity gospel who have multiple multi-million dollar mansions and fly around in their private jets and say, isn't this, you know, this is, we're, we're, we're representing God. It's like, no, you are not. It doesn't look like my God at all. It, it's not a good representation of, of who he is. It, it, it's tra- just a tragedy because right now it, it's causing people to see an image of God that is not our God. I mean, our God is good and he's gracious and he's powerful and, he, and, and to see Jesus it, it is glorious. And so this prosperity gospel, it misrepresents God. That would probably all by itself be enough. But the thing is, people believe it and it's a false gospel. It's a false gospel that, taken at its heartbeat, will lead people not to a saving relationship with Jesus, but it will only feed their flesh and only kind of create God to be a rabbit's foot to make them successful. It's a thing that, that, that keeps people from that. In fact, I think about it this way. You know, Jesus was sharing about money and riches and how it can affect our soul in Matthew 19. He said to his disciples, Surely I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is really, really hard. He says money doesn't actually help it. It actually complicates it. Now, don't get me wrong. He can do it. In fact, Jesus would go on to say this. Hey, what's impossible for men is possible for God. And thankful he does do that. And, and, and he can bless. And some of you are blessed. And that's a good thing. But you know what? You'd have to own, hey, there's a problem. If the gospel becomes messed up where it would basically be saying, if you believe Jesus, he'll make you rich. If you believe Jesus, he'll make you successful. It would become a different gospel. Paul would talk about a different gospel in Romans. I'm sorry, in the book of Galatians, where he says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ, into the wonder of who Jesus is, to a different gospel. He says, as we've said before, And now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel than what you've received, let him be accursed. Now, what Paul is dealing with in Galatians is a different issue. It's just dealing with legalism and law. But I just want to take this principle and say, if it's a different gospel, if it's presenting something that's entirely, he says, hey, that's accursed. I mean, that's just, let it be just seen as, as just, you know, to be spit out, put away. It's destructive. It's terrible. It's a different gospel. I mean, that's one of the scariest things right now is that's actually true. So there are people who are kept out of the kingdom of God because of this lie. There are people who, because of this, because they hear this, ultimately it turns them from surrendering a life to Jesus because they heard the wrong message, because they heard the wrong thing, and sadly that is happening in mammoth ways. Because here's the deal. This false gospel, this prosperity gospel, is spreading like a cancer. Now, maybe you know this. Maybe I'm saying stuff this morning, and you're like, Jim, I know. I know. But can I just pause and say, it's happening. There are spaces in our town where in churches, this will be the message that's preached today. That's true. It's happening across our nation. In fact, in some of the largest churches in our nation, 
That's going to be the message today. And it's literally happening around the world. It's, and it's spreading. It would be one thing if it was just like, well, you know, there's a couple, you know, a, a few. And it would be bad enough if it wasn't becoming so prominent. You know, I found myself thinking, maybe I'd give names right now, but I just thought, you know, I don't want to give names at this moment. Not that I'm afraid of giving names. I just want you to focus on the truth. I just want you to think about, okay, so what would this be, this, this cancerous lie that would do this that is misrepresenting Christ? In fact, let me go further. It's, it's not only spreading here, it's spreading around the world. If you know anything about what is happening in the world scene right now, especially within Christianity, uh, within the church, what you would maybe come to be sadly aware of is that some of the worst bad teachings that exist in America have become just massively magnified uh, into third world countries and to some of the most broken spaces of the world. And it's tragic. I mean, so that in places like India and some of the places in Africa, you know, this lie that is present here is only more pronounced there. Some of you know Mark and Karen Dawson. They are missionaries that we support as a church. We are behind them. They serve over in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the sad reality is it is pretty much a Christianized land. That is, uh, the majority of people kind of identify uh, under Christianity there. But the majority of the churches there are prosperity gospel churches. The majority of what's being presented there is how you can get wealthy, how you can get healthy, and if you believe it will do this. And the sad thing is it's destructive. In places like India and spaces where it's going, I mean, here's this, I don't even know how to say it as well as I want to say it. In places where people are already struggling with poverty, people are already struggling in some of the most impoverished cultures, this lie, instead of coming and helping, it is a problem. Uh, you have a few people who are trying to get wealthy off of those who are there misrepresenting God, and it's so heart-wrenching, tragic. So it's, it's being exported around the world, but it doesn't work in many parts of the world. It, it's actually hindering missions, and it's, at, at its very heart is, is going against that. So India... Uh, Africa, there are spaces where this false gospel is trying to go forward there and sadly being embraced. But let's just think about, again, how it doesn't work. There are spaces that it just doesn't even, I mean, it doesn't work at all. So like North Korea, Iran, like it doesn't work that way. I mean, you know, if North Korea, if you want to become a follower of Jesus, it's not going to be like, hey, you can be healthy and successful. It's going to be, you might have to die. Uh, You're probably going to lose everything. You're probably going to lose your family and your job and your friends. I mean, if you believe in Jesus, it's, it's not going to make you successful. It's going to ruin your life. It, it has very good potential to, to ruin what you have in this world. So to believe that in those cultures, it goes heart-wrenchingly against this, but that's part of the problem because this is being pumped out on the airwaves. It's being pumped out on the internet, and so somewhere there, it's like, oh, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't land there. It doesn't work in those cultures, but it's doing something else. And, and again, I, I just quickly say this because it is part of the heartbeat of Third John, and we're going to talk about it more next week and in the weeks to come, but a big part of Third John is to encourage this heart for the world, uh, this heart for the gospel, this heart for missions, and it's going out. And one of the sad things about the prosperity gospel is it has a directly inverse effect to real missions. So, Wherever the false gospel of prosperity goes and the churches that are that, it's not creating a, a group of people that have a heart for missions. I mean, maybe this just makes sense, but let me just kind of point it out to you. Like, if you believe this, hey, like, this is how I'm going to get rich and successful, 
why would you go to a culture that you might have to lay down your life? I mean, how would this work to say, hey, I want to take the gospel into some of the most impoverished places of the world where I might die, uh, where people might kill me? It's like, that doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't create that kind of heart. It, and so it's a tragic thing that is actually hindering the gospel, hindering everything moving forward. It's a false gospel that is absolutely keeping people away from Jesus. Now I think about that, maybe that's well said enough, but I'll just give you another quote. If you can hear it from somebody else, if it would land from them. John Piper talks about this every now and then in, in one of his quotes. He said it this way. He says it's a tragic thing that one of our greatest exports of America is the prosperity gospel, and sadly it is. One of the greatest things we export into this world is this lie. People are being destroyed by it. Christians are being weakened by it. God is being dishonored by it, and souls are perishing because of it, and a lot of guys are getting rich on it. Sad truth. I mean, sadly true, but that's exactly where we are. We have a false gospel that's being represented, a false gospel that is leading people away from these things. And again, that's an incredibly tragic thing. So it mocks God. It's, it's hindering people from believing in Jesus. And again, it's because of that I want to warn you away from it. But it has more. See, it actually messes up real Christians. So the, the false gospel, the prosperity gospel, it creates harm. Uh, it creates a mess at times inside the hearts of believers. It actually is feeding the very thing that we're supposed to be dying from. That the Bible's calling us not to live self-centered, selfish lives, but the prosperity gospel is offering you a self-centered, you know, focused on you kind of lie. And I think about how destructive this is, and I think it'd be better if I just give it to you in the words uh, of the Apostle Paul. So he writes about this in 1 Timothy 6. So this is a longer sentence, and if you, anybody knows Paul's sentences, sometimes they're like big run-on sentences. He just does that. Um, so I just want you to hear the whole sentence because, you know, where we're going to land is in, that, in, the, in the final piece of it, but it all builds to that. So hear it as one sentence. It says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which accords to godliness. So we have the good gospel. We have the things of Jesus. And if anybody's going to teach anything else that's going to lead us away from Jesus, from this thing that's going to invite us into these godly lives, he says that person is proud, knowing nothing, is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. I mean, just really, really well said. He says, so we have this true gospel. If anybody's going to go any other way and they're going to have these useless wranglings of men of corrupt mind who are going to say, hey, if you're godly, if you're godly, that'll gain. Like, if you're godly, that'll make you rich. If you're godly, that'll increase you. He says, hey, that is destructive. That is destructive. You should stay far away from that. Like, you hear that. It should be the kind of thing that says, I'm not going to listen to that person any longer. I'm not going to watch that person on television. I'm not going to read their books. I mean, we pull away from that lie because it is destructive. It feeds something inside of us that instead of being good is bad. It feeds a selfishness that causes us to, to live for things of this world. He goes on to say that those who desire this, desire to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare and to many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men and destruction and perdition. He says it's feeding this hunger, this desire to be rich. And, and here's the problem. It's not actually, it, it, you don't have to be rich to have this go wrong. Uh, you, you could be absolutely poor but have this desire. And you could, funny, actually be rich and 
not have your heart set on it. It's like, that's not my life. I don't live for that. <laughs> I just, whatever God gives is good, but my heart is Christ. I, like, I live for Him. But He says, here's the thing. This prosperity gospel is feeding this desire to, to be rich, and that is destroying lives. He says, it is drowning men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, from which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So sad reality. Some will do this. And this very false message will cause people to wander away from Jesus. It will cause them to stray from the faith because they've gotten greedy. They're making that the focus. And, they're gonna, and instead of that going well for them, it's just going to make their life miserable. And I, and I love you. And I care about you. And I'm just wanting to say, I don't want that for you. I don't want that for anybody here. I don't want you to go down that road. I don't want you to go down this space because it feeds this. I mean, to believe this, it is destructive. This becomes complicated in a lot of ways. Not only is it feeding the wrong thing, if things go well in your life, it certainly would make us prideful, which all by itself would be a huge thing, but probably its most prominent characteristic inside the lives of, of Christians is it creates a wave of condemnation that is not a godly condemnation. It creates a wave of condemnation for Christians who suffer. Now, here's the deal. It probably affects some of you more than you thought it did. Some of you who would say, well, that doesn't bother me. But the funny thing is sometimes it does. Because here's the lie. I mean, the lie is, okay, so what happens when things do go badly? What happens when you do get sick? What happens when the report comes back and it is cancer? Uh, what happens when uh, the person doesn't get better and, and, and a relative or a friend dies? What happens when you don't get the promotion? There's, a, there's a, a lie that comes in there that begins to say, you know, if you're really godly, that wouldn't happen. I mean, if you really loved God and if you prayed harder, that would go different for you. Like, it's your fault. Like, it's a mess right now, but it's your fault. It's you're the one that did it. That's the book of Job, by the way, right? I mean, so anybody read the book of Job, you've read it. Job goes through these incredibly hard things. I mean, his life explodes, his finances explode, his, his businesses crash, his health plummets, his family dies. I mean, everything that can go wrong, that could go wrong, goes wrong. And then he has three friends, quote unquote, who come to him and in essence say, Job, it's your fault. Like, this wouldn't happen if you were godly. I mean, you obviously sinned and did this, so you, you caused this, and if you would just stop sinning, it would all get better because that's how this works. And it only just pours on the, the destruction in Job's heart, which, by the way, at the end of the book of Job, God says, they're wrong. <laughs> they're wrong. You know, you guys have not spoken right about this. But here's the thing. Sometimes we believe it, and some of you believe it. I mean, you don't even realize you were believing it. But you somehow when things are going wrong, I mean, what you're going through is hard enough all by itself. What you're going through is hard enough all by itself. But then to believe this, that somehow, well, if I had prayed harder, if I, would, if I had fasted, if I had if I'd really worked harder, it wouldn't be this way. It only adds so much destruction, and everything I want to do is to draw you away from that. Oh, don't get me wrong. I mean, sometimes God is dealing with sin in our life, and where we need to repent, we should do that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this weight of condemnation that is so heavy, and yet for some of you it's believed and it's destructive. It's keeping you back from trusting in God in the midst of your suffering because you're blaming yourself in ways that you are not meant to do that. It's not meant to be a part of that, that it creates condemnation that I would so long to rescue you from. Now, that just draws us, and I'm just going to go, you know, kind of 
deeply for a moment. Some of you think, well, I thought we already were deep. But yeah, just a little bit further. Let's just talk about, so how does God work in suffering? What is the theology of suffering? And if I can say it in a very quick way, it's a big deal. Like, like this is one of those realms that for Bible students and theologians, it's like, this is not an easy answer. Anybody that says it's easy has not really thought it through. Uh, So why? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, why sometimes does, does life not go the way we thought? I mean, why, why is that? It is not an easy answer. It is not something that, that finds itself in simple, you know, simple equations. But there are a few things that we can absolutely lock down, just giving it to you briefly. So you think about the theology, the understanding of the truth of God behind Scripture. There's a few things you absolutely need to know. First and foremost, God is sovereign. I'm like, He is God. There's not anything happening in our world that He is not reigning over or He can't deal with. There's not one thing that finds itself where God would say, oh, I didn't know that was happening. Or, oh, I, that, that's outside of my purview. I don't do that. You know, there's not anything that his, in, his, in His might and His power that He is not reigning over, that He's not in control of. He is sovereign. And He's good. He's absolutely good. There's not anything, he doesn't, he's not, you know, playing games with us. He's not uh, at all cruel in, in allowing this. He is absolutely good, and he gloriously cares. We are, have a God who loves and, and sees us. And I probably could insert right there before the next one, he does heal. Like, he can restore. Like, you should ask him. Our God can do the miraculous. He, he does restore sometimes, but he just doesn't do it all the time. Not now, but he will. The reality is the end of the story, if you're a follower of Jesus, is you are going to be perfectly healthy. And you are going to be, you know, everything that is broken in our world, we're going to be done with. Jesus is fixing the problem so that when we get to heaven, there's no more sin, there's no more suffering, there's no more pain. There's all the things that really are the results of sin in our world. Jesus is the cure, but it just doesn't cure everything now. Uh, Again, I don't know if that lands for you, but I'll just tell you for Asaph, the guy that we talked about a moment ago, this was his big, you know, aha moment. He writes this whole thing, and he's trying to figure out why do bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people, and I don't understand why that's happening. He says, it's so, so very hard for me. And he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and I understood, this is not the end of the story. This is not the end of the story. No matter how successful they are, they're going to face judgment. They're going to stand before a holy God. And everything they thought they had, they lose. And what about me? God has me. He's going to carry me to the end. I mean, it's the end of the story. It, you know, don't, don't judge in the middle of the, of the book. See the end of the story. And he says, if you could see this, you would know. You would see our God is incredibly good. And, and he is. And he's not okay. He's not okay with pit sin and sorrow. He, he doesn't like cancer and he doesn't like death. He's going to deal with all of those things. But in this world, it's still a part of it. But he's working. There's not anything you're going through that is just a, well, it's just because. Everything you go through, he works. So that Romans 8.28 tells us he's working together all things together for those who love God. That, that somehow, even in some of the stuff that we're going through, it, there's a purpose, there's a plan, there's a thing that he's working. And in ways that I can't even communicate, there's a gospel thing that's happening here. See, some of this is a representation of Jesus, the one who came to be a suffering servant, who came to give his life away. God is allowing us to live in a broken world in a way that both we can connect but shine that. 
I mean, there's incredible things, and he's working it all together for good, just believing that would be helpful. Well, let's just be very practical. Maybe the biggest lesson about suffering for you and I is that you can trust him. You can trust him. The weight of Scripture, when it talks about suffering, doesn't explain all the whys and hows, ultimately invites us to say, God, you're God. That's the book of Job, by the way. Job, the, the book on suffering, if you will. God himself shows up at the end of the book, and he's going to give Job an answer, and he doesn't explain why, and he doesn't explain how long. He doesn't explain what God's doing. He just reminds Job that he is. He just shows Job his greatness, and that's really what Job needed. It's like, I can, you know, this is God. I can trust him. Like, I can trust him. Like, I don't have to know. I can just say I can trust him, and I can tell you, hey, that's a powerful reality that I invite you to in the midst of it. It's a powerful reality that we think through in the midst of this, and it's so very, very different than this lie, this prosperity gospel that is destroying people's lives. So everything inside me just wants to say, I love you. I, I don't want this to be a part of your life. If it's a part of your life, may God rescue you from it. If that's the books you're reading or the shows you're watching or the people listening to, stop. Stop. It's destructive. It's destructive. May God rescue you. If, if that gets exposed, may he do that. May it be that because our, our Jesus is amazing. Our, our God is glorious. He is worth your believing in. And, and these lies are wrecking people's souls, and I don't want it to wreck yours. So it's not true. Being godly doesn't necessarily make you healthy. It doesn't necessarily make you successful, at least yet, till we get to heaven. That said, so verse 2 is not saying that. Verse 2 is not a promise that if you're godly, you will be healthy. But let's just kind of quickly say, it's a good prayer. It's not a promise. It's a prayer. It's not a promise. It's a prayer. Read it with me again there in verse 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. Hey, it's a great prayer. Hey, it's a prayer we pray. I mean, you might not realize you're praying it, but probably you have. We pray for people. We pray for their health. We pray for God to work in their lives. It's a good prayer. It's not bad to pray that, as long as you understand that the connection doesn't work that way. But let me ask you a different question. Again, just so you're not going to lose me, it doesn't work this way, right? So nobody's like, well, Jim, I think it, no, it, godliness doesn't equal prosperity or health, right? It doesn't work this way. But what if it did? What if God answered that prayer right now? What if right now God actually did this in your life? How would you be doing? You know, some of you, you would be doing so well. Here's the thing. You are spiritually healthy, you're in the Word of God. You are feeding your soul every day. You're praying. You're breathing in the very breath of heaven and, and connecting to God. Your heart is moved with compassion. Your heart is beating strong. Your, 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 your muscles are well oiled. I mean, because you serve God. You're working for Him. You are, you know, you're living for Him. You're putting into practice. You are healthy spiritually. And if today, God allowed this to work, you would be bouncing around the sanctuary. Like, this is great. Like, this is so much fun. I mean, I would say for some of you, it goes so well. But if I can lovingly, kindly tell you, for some of you, this would go badly. For some of you, it would go badly. Like, you would be being wheeled in on a gurney, you know? I mean, here's the thing. For some of you, you read the Bible a little bit with us this morning, and you're not going to read it again all week. 
I mean, you don't even make it here every week. I mean, you're so spiritually malnourished. You don't pray that much. The breath isn't there. Your heart is, is crusty and hard. And you don't ever do anything for Jesus. I mean, your muscles are so atrophied that if we had to wheel you in on a stretcher, you wouldn't be able to move. I mean, you would be on life support with just a, you know, some spiritual IV holding your soul in check. And it's a scary reality. For some of you, you could go, I'm so glad it doesn't work that way. I'm so glad. This, I'm glad because I would be, and I don't, I'm not obviously encouraging that. But I do want to say, may God even expose that right now. You go, I'm so glad it isn't. But you know what? I would long to be that, if it would be so, that it would go good with me. That I could say, hey, if God let my physical body be where my spiritual self is right now, it would go well. Because that's what John's praying. He says, I want you to be as physically healthy as you are spiritually. Like, I am longing for that. And, And it's a good prayer to pray. And Gaius had it. Gaius was just such a man. So let's go back to Gaius. Okay, told you we were going to rabbit trail for a while. We were going to go for a little while. We did. Now we're back to Gaius. And some of you are like, man, I'm totally, like, I can't get, I'm, I'm, I, I get it. I'm sorry. But I hope it's helpful. I hope that we can just say, okay, so we've talked about what this verse is not saying. It is not a promise of health and wealth. But it is a good picture of Gaius. It is a picture of this man that you and I get to look at and see a man who, once more, it describes at the end of verse 2 saying that his soul is prospering. His soul is prospering. And I want to take you back to the description I gave you a moment ago. So prospering means it's doing well and growing. The idea is it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and it's moving up forward and forward and up in, in good ways. That's God's design for our life. I like the way it gives it to us in Second Peter. It says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. As he talks about some of the things that we've just talked about false teachers and lies that are in there. He says, you know that's not true now. Hey, don't let anything move you away from that. Instead, he says, I want you to grow. I want you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. He says, you should be growing. He says, don't don't let those things mark you. Instead, let it be that you're growing in him. Proverbs would give it to us this way. He says, the path of the just is like a shining sun that shines ever brighter under the perfect day. It says, if you could, almost on a chart, chart out the growth of, of someone who's doing well, it's as if you're looking at them and they're getting better and better and better and better and better. They're growing and, and, and more and more and more. That's God's good design. That's the way it's supposed to be happening. That's the way it should be true of your life. I think about it. Paul the Apostle would describe it that way for his own life, right? He said, you know, I haven't arrived. I haven't, I haven't reached everything God has for me, but one thing I do, he says in Philippians 3, I forget those things which are behind, but I'm pressing. I, it's as if you could look at this, it says, I, I'm pressing after the upper call of Christ. I want to grow. That's what your life should be looking like right now. Now, let's just, just own it again. That's how this is supposed to work. There is no instant super Christian. I, I know that you guys probably know this, but sometimes we want it. Sometimes we're at church, it's like, is there a prayer I could pray, like a verse I could memorize that all of a sudden would take me from being lame to super, you know, like in a moment, you know, like, can we just like super hard charge this? And God's like, no, no, we're going we're gonna to grow incrementally. I mean, like you just grow, like keep growing, keep reading, keep praying, keep pressing, keep, let your soul be prospering. That is God's good design. That's what he wants for your life. 
That's what Gaius is. Gaius is doing that. He says, your soul's doing that. Like, you're growing. I'm so excited because you're growing. Because your soul is moving upward. And, and he describes a little bit about how that happens. How is that happening? Verse 3, for I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of, notice, the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. The truth, yeah, mentioned four times in these few verses here. It's truth. It is about truth. Jesus is the truth, right? You guys know that. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So for Gaius to know the truth, it's to know Jesus. In fact, Jesus would say, if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. If you, if you have that, the truth will be that that guards you and protects you and draws you into the life that you have. In fact, it might be helpful just to read it again in Ephesians when Paul would talk about the church there. It says, in him, in Christ, you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, whom having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Truth is Jesus. Truth is the gospel. And you're meant to know that. You're meant to know that. And when Gaius did it, he knew it in such a way that it became so personal. In fact, you need to kind of feel this. There's a real personal nature to the way this is just described. I'm reading out of the New King James Version, uh, and so some of you have that with me. And so if you do, just note again the way it says it. It says, I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you. Just notice that phrase, the truth that is in you. If you have the New King James, you'll notice that the word that is is in the italics. Uh, we remind you every now and then uh, when the Bible is being translated from Greek into English, English is different. So whenever they added words that weren't in the original language, they put them in italics so that you would know, hey, that just, that just helps the sentence make sense. But in the original, it would just be, uh, you know, testified of the truth in you the truth in you. And that's helpful, but it's more possessive than that. So other translations, if you have the ESV or the NASB or uh, one of those translations, it would read something more like this. I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Yeah, it's not just truth, it's your truth. Now that probably makes sense, but let me make sure let's get this really, really clear. We are not talking, uh, uh, you know, the kind of the way that people do in our world today as if your truth could be different than my truth. Like, we all have our own truth. And, you know, you, that's not what he says here. There is one truth, and the truth is Jesus. There is one truth, and the truth is the gospel. But it's meant to become yours. So it's not just the truth. It's my truth. It's my truth. It's, it's mine. We would say it kind of in our vernacular here in English that what God is looking for you is to have a very personal relationship with Jesus. So it's not just that Jesus is the Savior. He's my Savior. Uh, it's not just that God is God. He's my God. It's not just that truth is, exists, but it's my truth. It, you know, it's mine. It, it, it's personal. It's real for me. It's, it's that there. And so when, when he says this of Gaius, he says, that's where this is. It's like, this is yours. You're a person who the truth is yours, like you have believed it. You, you have that. God wants that for you in your life, that it wouldn't just be, well, yeah, that's what my pastor preaches, you know. That's what our church believes, you know, kind of deal. As if somehow that were it. It's like, no, it's mine. Like, I, I believe it. So much so that it, it, it belongs to me. That, it, that, it, that it's, I, I, I possess it, even though it belongs to all Christians, and it's truth that it can't be changed. It is glorious that it is so. 
It needs to be so for you today. That God is inviting you to have this to be your truth. But notice what else? He actually walks it out. So you get this whole place. So John is writing this to Gaius. He says, I rejoice greatly, verse 3, when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Okay, so this doesn't take a whole lot to unpack, right? You understand it. There's a difference between talking the talk and walking the walk. It's one space where someone's like, yeah, you know, I believe in Jesus. And then it's like, well, I wish your life looked like it. You know, kind of, you know, it's like, that's kind of the, the, the deal. He's like, no, this guy actually did it. I mean, he didn't just say it. He lived it. He didn't just say, hey, I believe it. I, 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 he walked it out. He talked the talk. In fact, catch it this way. It's what other people said about Gaius. So if you can kind of picture it this way, there were people that had visited Gaius or gone to the church where there were Gaius is, and they've made their way on a journey to wherever John is when he's writing this letter, and he says, hey, people have been talking about you. Now, I'm I just going to pause there. That's a pretty interesting. Now, if that's all that was said, like, oh, no, <laughs> what they say? <laughs> like, <laughs> but he says, they, they're telling me how good you're doing. They're telling me how much you live this thing out. Again, if I can just be very practical. Is anybody talking about you that way? Is there? I mean, I'm not trying to be harsh, but is anybody? Would, would people who know you go, oh yeah, oh yeah, this person, they live out what they believe. Yeah, they, they walk it. I mean, they're, they're not one of those Christians that just talk the talk. They, they live it. You, sh- you should see the way they, they handle this in their job or their home or their family. Like, I, I, I've seen it in their life, and they're actually doing it. That's a beautiful thing, and that's what God wants for all of our lives, but that's what Gaius is doing. He's this guy who knows it, he walks it, and John just says it this way. He says, that's my great joy. In fact, just hear it again there in verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So you probably understand. It's probably not his physical child. He's speaking spiritually, Speaking of the fruit of, of his ministry, that somehow he'd been an influence in Gaius's life, and Gaius is doing well, and he says, that is my great joy. I think that makes sense, but I think, it, I'm just trying to figure out how to say this, and I don't know how to say it any other differently than just to talk about it in my life. So, my greatest joy as a pastor is to see people who live it out. Now, I want to say it carefully. I, I've been a pastor for 27 years, coming up on 28 years in February, and, and part of that duration has taught me some things. And sometimes maybe, I, I don't want to say it makes me cynical, it's not that it makes me cynical, but I've also come to recognize, you know, I, I love it when people surrender their life to Jesus. I love it when somebody says, hey, I want to I become a Christian. I love that. I love that. I love it at the end of a sermon when somebody comes and says, oh, that was a fantastic sermon. I really, really liked it. I, I, I really like that, so don't stop saying that. I'm not, I'm not telling you not to say that. But I'm just going to tell you this. That's not my joy. My joy is when people actually do it. When it's like, hey, they, they surrendered their life to Jesus, and now they're walking it out. It's like, yes. <laughs> like, that is my joy. You know, my joy is not like, hey, that was, I like the sermon. It's like, no, but hey, Jim, I, I heard that message, and it changed me. Like, there's, my life is different. I've, I'm different now than what I used to be. I, John says, I have no greater joy than that. And I don't think he's speaking in just hyperbole. And I'm just going to tell you from the heart of a pastor that hopefully I would say from the heart of God is that is the joy. 
that when you would actually become such a person who knows it and walks it out, it's like, yes, this is what makes church fun. This is the, the fun parts of a church when that is actually happening. And so he's able to say that. He's able to say to Gaius, he is that. And I'm just telling you, that's what God is longing for for you. He's longing that you would be such a person. Well, one other thing we need to talk about, but honestly, we're going to leave it for next week, but I'm just going to give you a preview. So Gaius is a godly man whose soul is prospering. He knows it. He walks it. But in the next section we'll leave for next week, he supports it. So if you want to read it ahead of time, you can read verses 5 through 8. And I wanted to give you, to tell you, hey, John, for Gaius, he was not just someone who knew it. He, He was behind the kingdom of God. He was excited about what God was doing and a part of it. And we'll talk about what that looks like next week. But I want to leave it to you this way and just say, this is one of these godly people that you should look and say, oh, that I would be found that way. In fact, as we begin to kind of circle towards a close, I just want to take you to another passage. And it's a passage out of the Old Testament that gives, for me, a similar picture. So Isaiah is writing it in the midst of a very difficult time in places where people are, in similar ways, going terribly uh, among God's people. And it just says, hey, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that the people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Like, don't, I mean, there's so many things that people are living in fear, so many things that people are living in, in conspiracy theories. He says, don't go there. Don't live there. Instead, the Lord of hosts. Him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Hey, be those who believe in God, who trust in God, who live for him. Bind up the testimony, Isaiah writes. Seal the law among my disciples. I will wait on the Lord. Okay, so, you know, be those who love God, who live for God, who hold fast to his word, who are trusting in him. And he ends just saying it this way, here I am. Here I am. And the children whom the Lord has given me, we are for signs and wonders in Israel, for the Lord of, from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. He's saying, you know, in this space, he says, here we are who are doing this. We're here to be kind of examples. We are here to be signs and wonders that people say, I want what you have. That's what Gaius is. Gaius is one who's saying, I live it. I live it out in a way so that, you know, here are these people who are holding fast to God's word, holding fast to his ways, meant to be lights in the midst of a dark world. And I just want to hold that out to you and say, oh, that you would be such a person. Oh, that as we read through Gaius this morning, that you would say, I think that's, that's what I am or what I want to be. I want to be one that that would define that for me. So you can close your Bibles, notebooks, whatever it is you have open, and we're just going to take a moment to pray for that. We're just going to take a moment and pray that God would do that. Now, I don't know where this landed for us this morning. I mean, just honestly, believing in God's goodness that he could have, you know, com- just communicated exactly what you needed to hear. But in a quick su- summation, I'll just say it this way. Maybe you're here this morning, you're outside of this. Maybe you're outside of this. You're not yet a follower of Jesus. And maybe it's actually this that's been keeping you back. See, I know people. I've read their stories. I know of people, personally, people who don't go to church anymore because they thought the prosperity gospel was true. And when they prayed and it didn't work and they didn't get healed or somebody died, they gave up. I'm telling you, it's not true. Our God is a good God though. He's a good God that sent his son to pay the price for your sin. He is fixing the world. You want to be on that side of it. Because if you're not, I mean, everything before you, it's going to only get worse. Hell is the destination for any that don't know Jesus. And we call you to the end of the story. That If you want to see where this is going, you want to be on that side of it. And if you're outside of this here, and if even the confusion has kept you from Jesus today, we just want to tell you Jesus is, is good. And he's the Savior. 
Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but honestly, this has been messing you up. Maybe you've been partaking uh, in the false gospel, prosperity gospel, and it's messed up your soul some, and you recognize that. It's a good day to put it away, to do exactly what Paul said in Timothy. Hey, withdraw yourself. Like, pull out of that. Don't let that be where your life is. If If that would be a rescue, be rescued from it. But maybe you're a Gaius. Maybe you're growing as a Gaius. It doesn't speak of anybody being perfect. It doesn't speak of somebody who's got the everything down. What it is saying is, I'm growing. I'm growing. I'm not what I should be, but I'm not what I was. You know, I, I'm not where I ought to be, but neither where I, I, I'm in this upward arc that says, I'm, I'm pursuing Jesus. I want more of him. I want more of that life in him. That's a Gaius where you say, I want to know it, I want to live it, I want to shine it. And, and, and if that's where, where you are, be encouraged in that and, and let God produce such a person in you and me. Let's ask him for that right now. You take a quiet moment and pray for it. I'll do the same in quiet prayer and then we'll come back and close in worship in just a minute. God, thank you for your good work. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the hope, the good news of Jesus. God, I pray for any that are just outside of that this morning. Some who have been confused and even led astray and and even stumbled over some of the things that we talked about this morning. Rescue them. Draw them to hope in Christ that Jesus, you did come to rescue. You are saving. And, And you will. May you draw to you those this morning that are outside of that. Would you overcome every lie and every just obstacle, Lord, in their hearts and lives to bring them to you. God, we're asking for that. God, I want to bring before you your people and some who are not doing well. And some of it's because of this. They have become partakers of a poisonous lie. And and, and it's working bad things in their soul. It's creating pride or condemnation. It's feeding the flesh and not the spirit. It's going wrong. God, would you cause just your truth to rescue? Turn people away. Turn it away so that they are not carried about with all the false winds of doctrine that so easily catch some. Draw these to to stability and security in your truth. And then, God, I thank you for those that are doing that. I thank you for the godly people who are just like Gaius in this church, who are my joy. They're growing. They're growing. Their soul is prospering. They're moving up. They're moving forward. They're they're, they're continuing to seek to be what you would have them and and that the truth would be theirs and the truth would be that which they walk out. Increase that. 
grow that in us, cause us to be that. God, we ask for it now and ask that you would do all this for your good honor and your pleasure, Lord. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May God do that. May he draw you to him and all that he has in that. If that's you that doesn't know Jesus, we're here. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus. Love to help you get that further. If you have questions over that or anything else, come up, let us pray with you and for you. But right now we want to close in worship. So why don't you stand? We're going to take just a few moments and sing and celebrate the goodness of our God. And as we do that, I just want to bless you in his name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.